Father, we thank you for our sister Janet. We know that she's not alone in, in having ailments and suffering, but she is suffering right now, and we pray that you would meet her, strengthen her, and completely heal her. And uh, we thank you for those in our midst who uh, are here battling through their ailments and illnesses. We thank you for Janet being here today. We thank you for Deb being here through, through her journey. We thank you for those who can't. Uh, I don't think Jordan's here. Lord, we pray you bless and continue to heal Jordan. And, and Father, we know there's traveling. We also know there's life has difficulties. We have people that we think of who are imprisoned. We have people who we think of who are in burdens. We think of people who we think of who are in, uh, in persecution right now. And we don't just stop as, a, as a, like a, a lip service to mention them. We believe that all over the world people are praying for those who are suffering and especially those in persecution. And it says to pray for those who are bound and imprisoned as though you were with them. So, Lord, we choose to do that today. We ask you to have your way in the lives of those who are suffering for your glory because they're obeying you. And we pray you'd strengthen each one of them and give to them exactly what they need in their moment. And give to the people around them what they need, the people who are persecuting them, salvation. Save many souls. We pray for the, for the many refugees coming out of Syria, etc., and all the countries, it's all that that's going on that is so chaotic and difficult that in the midst of that, and I know there are, there will be Christians seeking to minister to people in their desperation. And since that contingent is so much uh, Muslim people, there could be in such danger for preaching or sharing or trying to show love, but we pray that you would make ways and that those people would be just uh, touched. Lord, there's so much going on that it wouldn't, there would be no way to do justice to explaining it to you. That's not our job. We ask you to rule and reign and have your way and use us in our lives in whatever way you'd choose. Because if we're not here at your disposal for you to use us the way you want to, what is our purpose? We need you. We need to be focused on you. Much more than you need us, we need you. Thank you that you are here for us. Thank you that you care about the small things and the large things, the distant things and the close things and everything in between. Now, Lord, we're desiring to learn the way you think because you think clearly and you don't have opinions. You have clear, powerful, right will as creator and king, and that's what we want to partake of today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to read you the first uh, five verses of John 15 and then explain why we're going to Leviticus. And to do that, I need to take you back to the last sentence of verse 31 in chapter 14. As Jesus is in the upper room, he says this final word, I believe, uh, in the upper room, arise, let us go from here. If you're at a table with Jesus and he says, let's get up and go, what would you do? You'd get up and go. <laughs> and I think they did. I can't prove that to you, that he didn't start to continue talking right there. But I have a feeling that there was a little bit of a break in, the, in his uh, speaking. And as they're going out, they go down, weave their way through the city. Where do they go? They go down to the brook of Kidron, the valley of Kidron. And from there, they would, it would be actually this way. Let's see. Can't do the my left, your right thing. I've always wanted to do that, and I just messed it up. But they went down, and then they'd go up to the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is in the lower portion of the Mount of Olives. And so they would be wandering through streets and then into fields and vineyards. And I just wonder, more than anything, if Jesus wasn't walking through and by a vineyard when he said these words. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean or washed because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Well, uh, just those five verses you could spend easily weeks on, let alone going through it with the rest of the chapter, which we're not going to do today. And the reason for that is, is that 
as I was here Monday night in this area here in a circle praying with the prayer group, as we finished, Bill Bufkins led us in communion, and he um, prayed a prayer that I don't remember. But I know that when he prayed the prayer, my heart was stirred to go to Leviticus 25 today. I knew Monday that I would do this. And I knew that it would be connected to being with the fruitful vine. And, uh, but that's what I knew is that Leviticus 25 talks about that every seven years you're to have a land rest, and we'll read this in a minute. Well, I told Bill privately, I just said, you just stirred me by your prayer. I know I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to be going to Leviticus 25. Then I walked up towards the back there, and Ruth Mares, you're here, Ruth, right there. She says to me, Rick, have you heard much about the Shemitah, either Shemitah or Shemitah? And I said, in my genius knowledge, is that like a Hebrew word? <laughs> right? And she says, yeah, it is. I said, nah, I haven't heard of it. She said, okay. Uh, there's just a lot of that talk going on. I walk out. I'm doing Leviticus 25. Uh, by the way, you should probably turn there uh, to Leviticus 25. I, I, I'm, I'm going to do thinking about Leviticus 25. She asked me about the Shemitah. I know nothing. I go home, and Tuesday, I think it is, Amy Bendur puts uh, a little blurb on the Facebook about the Shemitah, which is the word release. In Deuteronomy 15, talking about the same issue after every six years, you stop your land and let it rest, and everyone rests. You also have a release of any Hebrew worker and servant and they're to go free, and it's a year of release. There's more to it we'll talk about. And that word release is the word Shemitah. Well, lo and behold, a guy named Jonathan Kahn, a Jewish Christian uh, preacher, uh, he's called rabbi. I don't know if he was once a rabbi or not. He also did the harbinger, which is uh, taking some verses out of Isaiah that show you about how America could fall into the same thing. He... um, he has this whole thing that he does on the Shemitah, on the seven-year release, on how it lines up, not only he but others. Many people are lining it up with the, it's just the Hebrew calendar and great events that have happened, not great wonderful events, but like stock market crashes, 2008, 2001, other great events. I'm not going to go into detail on it. Do I believe what he's saying? Well, first of all, he did not say... Therefore, this September 13th and 14th, which is the next Shemitah according to the calendar, the Jewish calendar, this is absolutely going to be, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, and Jesus is coming on this day or that day. He says nothing like that, and he says nothing could happen. But here's what's happened, and here's what I see, you know, here's the kind of things that are happening, here's where we're going according to Scripture, and I don't fault it. I don't, when I read those kinds of things, Dates and stuff that people line up, I, I just, and I'm not denying, I just want you to know something. You could pick any date every seven years, every such and such, and you'd find major events to fit into those. So I'm a little leery of saying, absolutely, I know that this is, all, this is exactly how it all lines up. Are we on the right dates? Is that going to happen? Having said that, to calm those of you who worry that we're going to get off on the prophecy thing, but to encourage those of you who are into the prophecy thing, it's great. It's good. It's true that we can see these things. They're pretty lined up pretty good. And, and the thing that we know is, I had to ask myself, if I really believed that Jesus was coming, and perhaps that was going to be, because it's, it's uh, on, the, on uh, Rosh Hashanah, is on the last eve of the month of Elul is September 13th, and the first day of the month of Tishrei is September 14th. Different numbers and different calendar, Jewish Hebrew calendar, and that is going to be Rosh Hashanah, the sound of a, a ram's horn and the start of a new year. Ten days later is Yom Kippur, which is when Jubilee would happen. Nobody knows Jubilee. I can't find it. I, there's people say they know it, but I haven't found consistency about Jubilee. It was never kept. And the land Sabbaths weren't kept in Israel. And we'll talk about that. I want to give you an overview here about the, the issue of this prophecy kind of thing that's going with it, is that nonetheless... These things are happening, and they're happening in rapid fashion in our, in our world. There's a lot happening. And, and as far as it lining up, I do believe it lines up. I just don't know that it's an exact science. And the question I started to ask that I interrupted myself with was, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming for his church in the rapture on September 13th and 14th? To make a long story short, the proper answer is, 
I wouldn't cha- do anything different than I'm doing right now. Here's the thing. If you knew Jesus was coming tonight, and you knew it, and that's why he doesn't let you know it, wouldn't it, it would change your day, wouldn't it? Like if you were going to go to the lake or the picnic or, or mow your lawn, and you knew Jesus was coming tonight, it would change what you did, right? He doesn't let us live our lives like he's going to come tonight every day in the, in the way that we would just stop doing everything and not function. How would you function? You'd, I'd be on the phone calling all my relatives, giving them one last shot to turn to Jesus. I'd be running to my neighbors and shaking them wild-eyed if I believed Jesus was coming tonight. Wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't, isn't that what you'd do? Do I believe Jesus could come tonight is the question, and I do. And therefore, the way I live my life should always be as if Jesus could come today. Not because of any particular prophecy that may or may not happen in a certain way that is depicted by people who write books and stuff. But are you ready right now for Jesus to come? Does that make sense to you? That's the question. Am I ready now? Will I be, if he's coming in two weeks or a month or less than a year from now for his church, what would I change that I'm doing? You know, my goal should be, and I believe it is like, Lord, what would you have me do now anyway, <laughs> whether you come tonight, a week from now, or a year from now? So that would be the, that would be the final, um, my final answer <laughs> to what I do with all the information I get about all these things. Because some of them will come true and some of them won't, but someday Jesus is coming. And it could be sooner rather than later. And that's what I'm, I am looking for is coming. So I'm not denying the power of this, of the Shemitah, but I, I can't tell for sure. When I hear these things, I can't, I'm not certain that it's all lining up just the way they say, but there's a pretty strong case, and you can get the video, you can go online, and you can research that yourself. For our purposes today, it would, I would not be able to do a good job on that, and it's not my forte, nor do I know that it's all just right, but I do know this. I know what Leviticus 25 says, and let's read it. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the Lord shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you'll sow your field, and six years you'll prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyards. What grows of its own accord of your harvest shall you not reap nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants, your hired man, and the stranger who dwells with you. For that your livestock and all the beasts that are in your land and all its produce shall be for food. So they get to eat too, freely. All right? Sabbath, land, rest. Jesus said, so why did I go there from John 15? Because Jesus is the true vine and we're the branches, and he's talking about fruitfulness, about fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. And the way to be fruitful in God is to obey his word. And Israel paints us a picture both when they were obedient and when they were disobedient. Okay? And um, I had one more thing to say about the Shemitah. If next Sunday night and Monday something major happens you'll know that this guys are right on <laughs> because cause it will be that day. Okay, now I'm done with that. All right, but I did want to say that because I wouldn't be surprised or amazed. I would think, yeah, they, their timing schedule was correct. Okay, but anyway, um, what would be the reason that God would say you work, you know, yes, you work six days and take the seventh day to rest. But now here's something even bigger. You work six years in your fields and then on the seventh year you let them rest. Well, in our science today, we already know that you need to rotate crops and give a land a rest or some other kind of nutritional reverberation or whatever the word is, um, and me uh, being a farmer like I am. And uh, so, so that's a good thing, but God didn't say just change crops. He said stop. Seventh year is a year of rest. In Israel today, there are Jewish people who are seeking to follow the law of the Old Testament who uh, the way they're trying to fulfill that is interesting. They, um, they lease out their land for a year to an Arab or a non-Jew. So they get money for it. Somebody else is farming it, but they found a loophole. I'm not trying to pick on Jewish people or my brethren in Israel. 
but it's really looking for a loophole. And, you know, that's not uh, significant only to the Jewish people in Israel with the law. I see a lot of Christians look for loopholes, like they know God's intent for them, but they find a way to say, but it's okay for me to do this or that or not do this or that, because they find some legal way, biblically, to find some obscure verse to get themselves off the hook. (laughs) Are you with me? Nobody in this room. They're all out there. (laughs) No, I'm not picking on people. I'm saying I've seen it in my own heart. Have you seen it in your own heart? You, You look for a way to get out of what God is telling you to do. And God didn't tell them to lease their land. He says, stop, all your, every servant and the stranger among you. All right. And so um, what would be the purpose? Well, I'll give you about four purposes that will have probably six or seven more embedded in them, and you can sift it out for yourself. Uh, but I would say, number one, you know, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and they that dwell within it. Did we read that earlier? You see, not only does Israel belong to God, but the whole world does. But they're a picture of his ownership. He's the creator. He's the designator. He's the assigner of your lot in life, as we've been learning on, uh, in Joshua and how he gave apportioned out the land of Israel. And it was his land. It's God's land. And uh, people everywhere in the world go, this is God's country, wherever you like, wherever you live, you call it God's country. You know, it's all God's country. The Sahara Desert is God's country, too. And ownership is not nine-tenths of the law, according to God. He owns it all. It's 100% his, and we're stewards over it. Which, by the way, it is Christian to take care of the environment, to go crazy about things that don't make sense, or you know, to find your balances there, have fun with that. But in terms of us just being neglectful of the land that we live in and saying, well, Jesus is coming, let's just let it trash. That's not Christian. We're stewards over the earth. We're stewards over our lives. We don't live unto ourselves. We don't breathe unto ourselves. We don't die to ourselves. We die unto him. So our life belongs to him. And so this purpose of God would be, it's mine. And it would cause humility to rise up in his people. He said to them, listen, it's God, me, who's giving you the ability to earn a living, to make money, to do your crops. It's not because you're so smart. Yes, I've given you intelligence and I'll give you wisdom. It's true. You were created in my image after my likeness. But understand your source. And so in an agrarian economy, which was most of the world through most of history, God's 100% in charge. And this would give a chance for people to be, avoid a couple of problems. One of them being greed. This get-aheadedness. Always having to do another thing and get ahead. And the temptation which affected Israel. Nobody ever looked at each other and said, you know, that guy's going to do the land Sabbath like the law said. You know, I'm going to do it too. What they did is they looked around and, uh, and I'm conjecturing this, but it's like, how did they never do it? Because nobody was willing to stop to be the one to stop. Well, if he doesn't stop, I'm not stopping. I mean, he's going to grow crops, he's going to get ahead and do better, and then I'm going to be stuck and have to buy from him later. I'm not doing that. Which is a real godly attitude, right? (laughs) So, (laughs) greed or fear. What will happen if we don't do this? That comes up. The fear comes up, and we'll address it in a few minutes, but so number one was that land is God's, and, and he can eliminate greed and fear or work on it in us through this. Number two on them, the land rests because God wants it to stop. You know, God created the earth in six days and man and everything in it, and then on the seventh day he rested, right? Before man fell, before there was problems in the earth, God stopped and that must mean that he just ran out of ideas. Is that what you think? You know, you know, you know, the fish in the ocean, especially that special one, that was like so hard for me. Now I'm really tired and I need a break. I'm thinking no. It's interesting about God's thought process. God's thought and God's will are in unity. He doesn't have a separation. I think about a lot of stuff that I never do. I think a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff that I shouldn't do. I do stuff that I don't think about. <laughs> How about you? 
God's thought and God's will and God's um, production, it's all one. He is a compound one. The Lord our God is echad. If you love Jewish words, Hebrew words, here's a great Hebrew word, echad, compound one. So God wasn't tired. He wasn't running out of creative juices. He just, I think, wanted us to understand that there's a time to stop. That's really hard for Americans. Uh, it's, we love to stop working, but we still don't stop. You know, it's a little tough on us. And number three, man and servants and animals were all to rest one in seven years. What a blessing God was providing for these people. He wasn't saying, I want to make sure you suffer. He was going to say, I want to make sure you thrive. I want to make sure you bear fruit and are as fruitful as you can be in your life. And you know, the blessing there, teachers, college professors who are highly tenured, doctors who have some history for them, what do they do often? They go on sabbaticals. Some of them do it on a seven-year basis. Where did all this come from? From the Bible, right from Leviticus 25. When you hear the word sabbatical, it came from the Sabbath land rest. And it's what people do who are in those high positions. But God says, I want everyone, servants, everyone to do it. A year of release. Things go back to zero. This is a part of a picture that I won't be able to explain the entire picture today without going through all of Deuteronomy 15, Leviticus 25, all the way through, etc. For our purposes, just let it resonate for now. But the, the thing was is that weren't there people that were shop owners or blacksmiths? Of course there were. But if all the land rests and all the food's available for everyone, then those guys aren't working to be able to buy food from the farmer either. They're, they're getting to do less. They're getting to just enjoy. Their, you know, it's not like people do nothing. You have to sit in your house and not move. But you didn't have to work and strive to fill your belly to make sure you had enough stuff. Everybody with me? God said, I want you to stop for a whole year worrying about trying to fix and get more stuff. Wow. That's kind of the concept, even though it's specifically the crops and the food. And so, again, in Deuteronomy 15, your brother's debt was to be released at that time, and he was to go free. So, you know, this would also help. In the, in, what if a family had, you know, great-grandpa and grandpa and dad um, all just really just strengthened the farm, the land that God gave us, took really good care of it, made it fruitful. And now I'm the younger brother and sister, and I got an older brother, and my older brother is a fool, <laughs> okay? And so fool comes and just blows everything, just gets the whole family into debt, ends up selling the property off, uh, you know, leasing it out, doing this thing, but he's got us in this total mess. What happens? At the end of six years, fool can't, his mess up can't ruin your entire, your entire inheritance. Somebody else can't mess up your inheritance. If, if God's people follow his, his law, it's, it's going to maintain even when it goes south. If somebody has trouble, it's not because of a fool in the family, but just hard things, you know. You know how it rains here? Sometimes it rains in one spot and then not in another. You know, my crops didn't get rain. I'm in trouble. I got to sell off for a while. There was a, a healing and a protection. And, and so, and it would keep the few. Now, I know that this will be hard for you to believe, but did you know, I bet two people here knew this, that when things get really tough, that rich people buy stuff from poor people at a really low price, and then they get even richer. Did you know that happens some places? While the world was crashing in 2008, while all these people's IRAs are going down the tubes, there's a few people that were making billions of dollars. And I'm not suggesting that we fix that, you know, through wealth redistribution and all that. I'm not making a political statement. I will tell you this, God cares about a few people having all the money and that's how it basically goes in the world. And that's what they do is they oppress the people that don't. And no matter where you live or what it is, this is still a human nature thing. It's a, the world has fallen, and it just doesn't mean there's thorns and there's bees that sting you. 
It means that people's hearts become selfish. There's enough of everything for everybody, but it's not, it's not well taken care of. And there are greedy people, and there are people who make foolish decisions and blame others for why they're broke, too. Listen, it's not just one-sided. It's always easy to point at the person that has and blame them. There's room for all of us to grow and learn about what we're supposed to do. So, but that would keep that from happening. God did not want a family to lose their land, and he didn't want five or ten families to become the owners of the entire land of Israel. You with me? This is real. This really happened. This is what God intended would, would be done. And so, few people dominating and oppressing others. But now, instead, a time for renewal, for thankfulness, for relationship building, for worship, for developing the creative side of life. And number four, not only it's God's land, not only to let the land rest and stop, for man and animals and people to stop, and blessing of sabbatical for everyone, but keeping a few from dominating, oppressing, but also from trusting God for our sustenance. And folks, what would it do for you? What would it do for you if you had absolutely zero concern for your physical well-being and your future? Who here knows exactly what that's like? Would you raise your hand and we'll shoot it because we don't believe you. (laughs) We don't believe you're that perfect at that. You may be way ahead of me or I might be ahead of one of you. But I don't know that anybody is completely at peace with, you know, the futures in God's hands. All of my financial taking care of stuff and physical well-being is in God's hands. But let me express to you, first of all, what a beautiful thing that God would want you to know, his people to know, I've got you covered. Because they would ask the question, and now we'll mention it before I continue on this theme. They would ask the question, and God knew the questions that we all are going to ask. Well, what if we don't plant crops in the sixth year? What are we going to eat in the seventh year? And God, he says it. He says, and when you ask this question, the answer is, I will give you a bumper crop in the sixth year that will be so good, it will take you to the eighth year, because you'll have to plant in the eighth year and all the way to the ninth year, and you'll be eating the results of what you've already got, because I'll bless you. And they would ha- what they would have to do is they would have to trust God ahead of time. And what they would see is they would see blessing. And I firmly believe God gave them blessing. And I firmly believe that it's very clear in Scripture. They never said, thank you, God, we get it. They said, well, yeah, we had a good crop, but that, you know, uh, loophole, loophole, where's my loophole? And so um, to trust God for your sustenance Listen, I think that uh, every physical thing is going to disappear. Is that right? The whole, this heaven and this earth is going to burn up in a fervent heat. Um, Everybody who gets sick and gets well will eventually die unless the Lord comes. Every, everything that's physical is going to end here. Are you with me? I mean, if you're a Christian, you actually, that's part of your theology is that life here. And if you're not a Christian, it's still part of your theology because you die. Life doesn't go on here. Nothing is kept forever. So everybody's theology has to go with this one. You can say, I transcend it, you know, in some other fashion other than Christianity and believing in heaven and in the presence of God, but you still have to have theology for that. So everybody's got the same theology about this life. It's going to end. So nothing physical is the ultimate thing. So God wants us to know that he'll take care of us physically. And he wants us to learn about that. You know why so much? Because we're here. There's a very practical reason, but there's another supernatural, deeper reason. And my, I don't know, this is what came to me sitting here this morning earlier in my, in the office, was you want us to know that that's just to propel us to understand that you care about the deepest things of our life. Because my having, having enough to take care of me physically is not... I know there's people starving. There are people starving. There are people hurting physically. So we also know that either God isn't good enough to take care of all that or there's a deeper issue in life for everybody. And that issue is that I want to show you that I take care of your soul. And when you come under my covenant in agreement, and that's where Israel was at, under his covenant, we can't fix all the things that are going on outside of that right now. We need to get that part straight to even think right. 
you're under covenant with God. You're in agreement with him. He's ruling over your life, and you're submitting yourself to him and to his rule. And when you see him take care of you physically, it's a sign to you that he cares about something that's much harder to take care of. Because what's your biggest problem? I understand if you disagree with me, but I think you're disagreeing as clear as I can with the Bible if you say it's not myself. Your biggest problem, even though some of you have huge issues to deal with that I don't even know how to begin, and I commend you to God and, and pray for you on these things, and I don't think I know it all, but I think everybody's biggest problem, according to Scripture, is themselves, is the inner person. It's you. You're your biggest problem. And if you'll notice, people who say, I'm not my biggest problem, I don't mean beating yourself up and hating yourself, but who don't acknowledge that our biggest problem is what comes up from within us, always have an axe to grind and always have somebody they're mad at or frustrated with. And it wouldn't matter how nice everybody was to you, you'll find the one who's bothering you. You'll get together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll have a lot of fun. It'll happen. Because the biggest problem in man is himself. The biggest problem in each person is ourself. I'm not saying there aren't big problems. They're just not bigger than my sin. And God wants, because what God will do on the outside is one thing, but what he wants to do every time on the inside is free me from my sin. Free me from being in bondage to it. Free me from living in fear. Free me from living in doubt. Because you all have different reasons why you have things to fear. I'm not saying you don't have real issues. But I talk to a lot of you guys. I talk to as many people as anybody else in this room, probably. And I find that you guys have really difficult things, some of you, to deal with. And I want to see God help you in those tremendously. But if I suggest that it's, there's an issue here that's bigger than him or bigger than the inner person, I think I'm arguing with Scripture. And I don't choose to do that. You get to do whatever you need to do. But I know that my biggest problem, I'll just go this way, I know my biggest problem is me. And I know that God wants me to be set free. He wants me to find liberty. He wants me to have Shemitah, <laughs> release. And that's my biggest issue. There are other issues, but they're not the biggest. So the Israel never kept one land Sabbath. How do I know that? History books? No, the Bible and history. The Bible in Second Chronicles uh, 36 says, Therefore God took them captive to Babylon. Jeremiah also says the same thing. And he took them and said, You're going to be in Babylon 70 years. I know the, word, the number seven is big in the Bible, but it's not like God doesn't know how to say anything else. It's because he goes, I'm going to have you go for 70 years because you've been in the land now 490 years, and you never gave the land the land Sabbath that I declared. And so I'm going to get the land Sabbath. So in 490 years, is 7 times 70 is 490. So 70 years, one for each of the seven-year land rest, you never gave the land. It's going to rest. And this says to me, God's word comes true for those who obey it and for those who disobey it. I don't convince somebody outside of the kingdom, and sometimes not even people in the kingdom, I don't convince people and force them to believe, and I'm able to talk over them and make them say, yes, God's word always comes true, but I can observe it. And I can say it, you know, to whatever ears will hear it, but I've watched it over and over and over again. God's word comes true for those who obey it, the blessing of obedience. Not perfection and no problems, but the clarity of God's blessing in your life comes to those who obey him. And the clarity of confusion, chaos, and trouble comes to those who disobey. Ultimately, that will be proven out completely on the day of judgment. So even if it doesn't look like it's happening now, it, it will happen. Now, if, you, if we don't believe that, then I don't know what it is that we believe about the Bible. We just believe things that help us live our day, make me feel better. This, the overall picture is so clear that it's either you take it in or you reject it. And so God's word makes it really clear. 
And it's kind of like the, the Fram oil filter commercial. I know all of you remember it. <laughs> it's the car mechanic wiping his hands, and he holds up a, air, a, a, a dirty uh, oil filter from a car, and he goes, yeah, you know, 1800 bucks to rebuild this engine that blew up. You know, I told the guy to get his oil changed. He didn't do it. You know, you can pay me now, you know, 30 bucks for an oil change, or you can pay me later. Your engine's going to blow up. But, you know, the whole point is, is to expect God to act contrary to his nature and his word is like expecting your car to run with no oil in it. None of us is perfect. This isn't, let's get perfect here, but uh, we just want to really believe God. So Israel is fighting it. And, you know, there's a guy, there's a picture of a guy in the scriptures who clearly exemplified not listening to the Lord in Israel. In Luke chapter 12, first of all, Jesus is talking to a crowd, and this guy raises his hand. Oh, a question. Somebody wants to ask Jesus a question. There's crowd, thousands of people. Master, teacher, tell my brother over there. Tell him to, to share the inheritance properly with me, to break up the inheritance of my dad with me, right? And Jesus says, man, who made me a, a judge or ruler over you, over your stuff? I didn't come here to fix your details with your brother about that. Interesting. Who made me a judge or ruler? I thought he was judge and ruler. But then he did answer the guy. He says, beware and take heed of covetousness, for a man's life does not consist of the things he possesses. And then he told him a story. A certain rich man had big, huge barns. He had a lot of property, and he was doing really well. And he had a problem. He says, oh, I have so much crops. I'm having such a bumper crop. I don't know what to do. What should I do? Oh, I know what to do. I'll build bigger barns. No thought like maybe I don't need any more and I'm supposed to help the rest of the country or other people or the poor guy. No, he didn't think about that. Or maybe I'm supposed to have a land Sabbath. No. I'll build bigger barns, and then I'll fill them up, and then I'll say, ah, soul, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And the Lord says, he, the Lord speaks to that man and says, you fool. Don't you know that your soul is going to be acquired of you this very night? And who's, will, who, who will lay that treasure up for you, or who will use up that treasure that you've laid up, you know, when you're gone? And he says, so is he who lays up treasure for himself on earth, but is not rich towards God. I don't think Jesus is saying that being financially prepared and being diligent should be rebuked. You know, if everybody in this room was flaky and lazy and didn't do anything about your own capacity to prepare, you'd be, we'd all be, have to go to some other church and lean on them to help us. You know what I mean? If we didn't take care of stuff. And this is not an excuse for laziness. On the other hand, um, being financially prepared doesn't mean being so consumed by having so much that you never have to worry being so self-consumed that it's all about you. It's not being lazy, and it's not being, uh, uh, that's, it, being lazy isn't the answer, and, and not being financially prepared isn't the answer, but confidence in self and hope in self and in money and not being rich towards God is the issue. Not being rich towards, that speaks to me that I have the capacity. See, I don't know how, how much capacity I have to make money. People have told me all my life I should be rich because I'm Jewish. You know, it hasn't really worked out. And, I mean, I'm very rich. And it, did, and it didn't work out for my dad. My dad was um, a really nice guy and not a really great businessman. And he lost several businesses because he was too nice to the people, and he wasn't just like Mr. Business Guy. So those of you who think all Jews, that's just so foolish. Uh, there's a high percentage of Jews that are in every category high because God has, a, has ordained that they be known because they're the people that bring us Christ. It's true. He's blessed them in many ways. But not all of them tell good jokes. <laughs> and not all of them are rich. And I, I, I'll tell you what, there's tons of them in New York City that are just working guys like some of you. There's plumbers that are working for a plumber contractor and are just Jewish. And they don't own the business. Not every Jew owns the business. 
So, okay, I got that off my chest. I think life will go better now. I finally got that out, you know, that Jews are rich thing. In fact, I got to do one more. I was in a group. I said, when I was in school and I was a kid in junior high, a guy said, well, if you had a Chinese baby and a Jewish baby and an American baby, this is an American guy in my day in seventh grade, he goes, but you know, he's telling the social studies teacher, but you just know that Jewish baby's going to grow up rich. <laughs> and I said to I was in a group of friends, and I said, can you believe that guy that he thought just automatically because you're Jewish, you're going to be rich? And my friend Tony Bianchini, some of you know him, he looked over and he says, well, I guess you showed him. <laughs> and I'll tell you, we laughed. Everybody in the room laughed for a very long time, much longer than I did. No, but so enough about me and my troubles and my weaknesses. Confidence in self, it's not about being rich in the earth, it's about being rich towards God. So you can be rich in relationship with God without being physically rich according to man's standards. We're not in Israel. We don't have their agrarian culture, but do we push to get stuff done and push ahead and then not stop to hear from God in ways that might really direct us and benefit us? This is really the question. This is challenging us because we don't have to fulfill their law, but we do need to find God's purpose, don't we? And we can hurt ourselves by being so consumed with, I mean, never stopping. When is enough enough? I mean, do you ever reach a time where you, when you buy something, you go, now I'll, I'll just never need anything else. You don't. And you're immediately thinking of the next thing you need to get. It's endless. And it can hurt you more than you realize. The scripture makes that pretty clear. You can be caught up and not even know it. And it could be over a dime, a dollar, or a million dollars. It doesn't matter. But Jesus told us that the Father is a really good gardener. And he's faithful, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, prunes it, every branch. Those of you who are like my wife, your master gardeners, even if you didn't go to the class, some of you are, you know what sucker branches are. They are the little extra branches that come out at the base or somewhere on a tree or in a bush or in whatever, a plant, and they take the sap from the original plant's energy and turn it into weak growth in the wrong place. Did you catch that? I'm going to say it again because I don't even know what I just said. Okay. Yeah. Sucker branches take the sap from the original plant's energy where it's supposed to go and turn it into wheat growth in the wrong place. So, you know, a little self-pruning probably would help us not have to have so much from God, but I've noticed God bring out the little clippers uh, on me, and I think you have too. Let's read 8 through 17. We won't comment a lot on it, but we'll just, uh, and then we'll finish up. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet and the uh, jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. This is a little different. This is jubilee, and this would be the 50th year now because you just had seven. So it's another additional year. And you shall make the trumpet sound throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. Stop there. Who knows where that's written? Okay, I'm going to give you a hint. Where you got it? <laughs> okay. Who knows where else? There's a young Rick Cohen sitting there. Who knows? Which isn't a good thing, bro. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> that should scare you. Okay. Who knows where else it's written? Okay, do you like, I'll give you a hint, do you like cheesesteak? Philly, Philadelphia, sounds like, what? The Liberty Bell. It's written on the Liberty Bell. And proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants, right out of the scripture. Ah, it shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession. Each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. You'll neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your unintended, uh, untended vine, for it's a jubilee, which just means sound of the ram's horn, the ram's uh, horn shout, the, the, the uh, blowing of the ram horn. It shall be holy to you, and you shall eat its produce from the field. In the year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. You shall sell anything to your neighbor. 
or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of the years after the jubilee, you'll buy from your neighbor, and according to the number of the years, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price, and according to the fewer years, you shall diminish its price, for he sells to you according to the number of years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall feel the Lord your God, fear the Lord your God, for I am the Lord your God. So you'll observe these things before me. There shall be a sound of a trumpet on the day of atonement, when all our sins are washed away, when the um, goat's blood was taken in and put on the holy of holy place, and the other goat was sprinkled with blood and sent out as the goat that escapes and goes away. And, um, and, um, and there's this picture, and the priest would come out and say, forgiven to the people. And at that day, every 50 years would be jubilee. And everything would go back to, everything goes back to its original owner. There are some details that are talked about later in the chapter we won't go into about houses and cities and Levites. But a total release and restoration associated with the Day of Atonement. See, we are to give value and increase value to things based on how close to Jubilee or far we are from it. It was like this. If it was 46 years since the last Jubilee, that meant you had three years until everything goes back. So if you're going to lease property from your neighbor and say, I want to lease that field from you, you would lease it with the amount, uh, the fair amount is three years worth of crops. Whatever's the fair amount, and they'd all know that, that's what you'd lease it. The guy couldn't say, well, if you want to lease this land, you've got to pay me for uh, 20 years of crops, because in three years, it was going to go back to the original owner. You with me? If, if, on the other hand, if it was Jubilee had just happened two years ago, and now you had 47 years, and you're going to lease it for as long as you could, you're going to pay a good penny. You wouldn't pay it all at once. It'd be as years go by, but you're leasing it at a price, a portion probably, to, to do 47 years. So the value you placed on the land that you're leasing because you don't own it. You're not keeping it. Do you remember that? You're not keeping it. What is your life but a vapor? You're here but for a moment. You're gone. You don't own it. You're not keeping it. It's passing. It's changing hands. It's moving. Do you see the point here? It's like, it isn't yours. You're, you're being stewards over the land, and you're being stewards over your life, and now you're being stewards over this property. And so you're going to give value to it that's determined by God. Now, only God can determine value. He set up the Jubilee. But Satan can change the price tags on you. And I just think that we've talked about it a little before. We've talked about the concept many times. How closely do we examine our lives, our stuff, our direction? I mean, parents, you have a big job because you need to prioritize your children's worldly success in accordance with spiritual value. And I know that you seek to do that. But, you know, our talent should be used. There's no question of that. But, you know, education, the arts, and sports need to be examined in light of eternal value. I, now remember, I said education, too. If you're not examining these things in light of, of eternal value, and, and, and look at the sticker at what you're placing on these things. Because, yeah, and, and should we want our kids to use their talents to become successful, to develop themselves? Of course. Why would we say, no, don't do that? But you know that sometimes people lose track of what's the real value. And I think we have this awesome task to make sure we give God's value. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus wants us to be set free. He wants us to find rest. We're not under the Jewish law, but here's what he said. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, on this Labor Day weekend, I think the Lord wants us to give full value to what he says is fully valuable, and he wants us to work it out individually in our own lives. You see, 
I cannot give you a list of rules, nor do I want to, because, you know, sometimes I go out and split wood because it's a great way for me to Sabbath and then go sit. I'm hot and tired, and I sit down, in a ch- and I just love it, and I just enjoy the outdoors, and I sit with the Lord in my backyard. And I couldn't tell somebody, you can't split wood. You're trying to, you're trying to um, you know, fill up your shed to keep ahead of the winter on Sabbath when you should be resting. Um, sometimes if I do that, I am, sometimes when I work on, I, I do something like mow my lawn or do that, I am trying to get ahead, and I need to stop. And sometimes I'm just enjoying God. So if you expect me to give you the answer for your life, which I know you don't, I'm certainly not here to do it, but I can tell you this. Are you willing to stop? I mean, are you really willing to stop and consider what you're doing? Because that's what the Lord asks me. And I think it's what he asks in his word. And do you really take time to find out what he wants to say to you? See, I believe God speaks to you, not your pastor doesn't give you every direction. And the Bible itself will give you direction, but then you have to have personal insight and direction in your personal circumstance from the Lord. We all know that. But are you being strengthened? Or do you have a bunch of sucker stems sucking your energy out, sucking your time out, sucking your focus out? And you're going in 20 directions. You know, some of it you can't fix, some of it you can't fix. But if you feel it, do you stop? And are you willing to have God speak to you and tell you something different than you're doing today? Because if nothing changes, nothing changes. You know what I'm saying? It's like if, I don't, if I'm not hearing from the Lord and I just keep doing the same thing, I'll probably continue to not hear from the Lord. I mean, the hearing from him is stopping and changing. And I need God's help for that. I'm not putting myself above anybody in this room. I'm saying I need help with that. I'm glad I'm in the body of Christ. And I'm encouraging you to do the same thing I'm encouraging myself to do. And let's give worth to the Lord and to his body. And that's going to happen right now. In our way together, we're going to have communion passed out so that we can all take it together because there's value in our being together and saying it's all one for all and all.